action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are continuing our celebration of 21st century queer cinema as we move on to 2017's The Handmaiden, directed by Park Chan-wook. In 1930s Japanese-occupied Korea, piss-poor Suk-hee is recruited by conman Fujiwara to help him swindle Lady Hideko out of her inheritance. The plan is for Suk Hee to work as the lady's handmaiden and convince her that she loves and must marry Fujiwara. But as love seems to blossom, all is not what it at first seems. Who loves who? Who is conning who? Who will win? Who will lose? And why does Uncle have a dirty black tongue? Joshua, have you seen this film before? I have seen it before. I saw it in the cinema and it came out uh, because, you know, the posters obviously were beautiful. Um, they looked almost like a raw shark test, sort of like symmetrical, beautiful um, South Korean artwork. And obviously it's directed by Park Chan-wook, who is one of our greatest modern directors. Obviously the director of Old Boy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Lady Vengeance. Um, and this... Stoker. Stoker, yeah, exactly. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Did he do Die Hard with a Vengeance? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't know those films very well. <laughs> he could have duped me. But yeah, I, mean, I was bowled away by it in the cinema. It, I just love the way it dupes us in the way the characters are duping each other. You know, it makes us yeah. part of the action as you go along. You know, it, so it's split into three parts, exactly the same as Fingersmith, the, the, the novel by Sarah Waters that it's, it's based on. Split into three parts and each part sort of reveals what's actually going on essentially so act one plays out very much sort of linearly and you follow Suki as she goes to this house etc etc and then part two suddenly flips everything on its head and you find out that Suki she's the one who is actually being set up uh, by the um, the lady and the count and then it flips it again the lady. in part three the lady, <laughs> the lady. Hideko Hideko um so yeah that's a very long way of saying i've seen it before how about you rob uh yes i have seen it before saw it at picture house central um and same i bought you the blu-ray ah yeah because i don't know if you knew that i had seen it but i had and i was very happy to get the blu-ray because it's beautiful Mm. there's no there's no extras on it but the actual um menu is like a sort of a hand-drawn illustration where there we go interactive menus and scene access what other extras do you need I need nothing more than that. This actually was a film that I really did want extras on because I was a bit like, please, someone just walk me through this film again. You know, I really want to learn more about why Park Chan-wook wanted to tell this story. Um, and that wasn't on the Blu-ray, sadly. So I wonder if the book is structured in this way. Yeah, it it's so is. visual. It's, but it's set in Victoria-era London, yes. I think. Yeah, and there was an ITV or a BBC adaptation 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Did you know it was based on a book set in sort of Victorian era London? And if you didn't, were you surprised? What did you feel about the actual adaptation? I've never read the book. Um, I I doubt five years ago I knew it was based on a book going in. Um, 
I was thinking about this during the week, actually, and I can't remember why I was thinking about this. I think sometimes when it comes to films that are based on books, you kind of have to go, well, I've seen the film. I don't feel I need to read the book now because the experience I've had with the story, um, I mean, I'm talking about films where you've been hit so hard by the film. They've really connected with you. Yeah. You know, like, um, oh, maybe I was thinking about Call Me By Your Name, that I'm only halfway through the book. And it it's, you know, the film version of Call Me By Your Name really hit me hard. And I don't, I don't feel the need to read the book. Um, I've tried reading Dune a number of times, but the Denis Villeneuve version is, for me, the version that I just want to pay attention to. I don't really care about the Frank Ubert version. Um, <laughs> I'm the same with, like, Misery and The Shining. Like, I think one day I may sit down and actually read Misery and The Shining, but I don't feel driven to because the films are so perfectly their own thing that I don't feel like I need yeah. to read them, you know. Well, I would imagine... I mean, it's no secret that... Kubrick's version of The Shining is quite vastly different to the Mm. book but with Misery I would imagine they're very 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 similar in the same way that the book of The Exorcist is very very similar to the film and same with um, Silence of the Lambs Um, so I, I don't feel the need to either know that this is a story based on a book nor do I feel the need to read that story even though it's the setting is different and it's not unusual for that to happen the girl was it the girl who looks from the train or the girl on the train with emily what's her <laughs> the face? girl on the train yeah the girl on the train that's set in london but in the film it's set in america not yep. a huge difference there's obviously quite a big difference to take a film from victorian england and then set it 40 or 50 years later in korea Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole other different cultural aspect. But the core of the story, I imagine, is still the same. Reading it is not going to... I doubt it's going to give me the same feelings and the same enjoyment as watching this film by a master filmmaker. Yeah. Well, I think it literally is a different... It will be a different experience because, you know, like you said, the original book is set in London and this is set in South Korea. So they are quite literally completely different. (laughs) But I, I love the way I love the kind of audacity of that, like kind of sideways thinking of, I guess, Park Chan-wook read the book or his screenwriter read the book and loved it. And then the kind of like the light bulb moment of going, what would it be like if it was set in South Korea in the 1940s? That's such a fantastic idea. Maybe they could only get the money that way. Maybe they, the, the, the funder said, yeah, but this needs to be a, a Korean film, so we need it set mm. in Korea. Sometimes with creativity, it's not just a creative decision, it's a financial decision. But mm. I, I haven't read the book, but I, I don't feel when I watch this film that anything is particularly missing. I don't feel like anything... I don't feel like there's any square pegs pushed into round holes. Everything seems to fit. It seems to be very organic so i don't know if much of the plot has changed in order to make it compatible with being in japanese occupied korea or if just by sheer chance it works well i wonder if it's because of the like the traditional values of victorian london perhaps Mm. weren't hugely different to the traditional values of south korea so the stuff about sort of pornography and illicit texts 
Um, that existed absolutely in Victorian era London, uh, Victorian era England. So I and feel the like class that system as well. Yeah, absolutely that class system and you know the exotic out of lander, um, you know all of that stuff. I think probably does quite seamlessly translate over to the east, and you know I guess you kind of always think that you're so you're so different in a different country, but the more you go to other countries, you you see so many similarities that actually it's it's sort of just nationalistic rubbish essentially <laughs> i think yeah i mean kind of but weirdly you because you're you know when you're in a different country you are completely alien to start with you notice things or you become obsessed with things that other people maybe take for granted so i went to copenhagen about six years ago i just took myself off for like a little four night stay and I became obsessed with their street lights. They don't have street lights like we yeah. do, where it's a tall pole that curves at the top with a light embedded. They've got sort of old school, heavy dome shaped lights that hang above the streets and are suspended by wires and they're yeah. everywhere. So I must have looked like a right mental case because I was just constantly photographing them day and night. And I have a nice little series that is in my photographic archives um, in the in the temperature controlled room on the side of my house. Um, When you're a stranger in a strange land, you notice things that maybe the locals don't. Yeah. Well, what's the film that we talked about um, like a good few seasons ago where we talked about globalization and how actually it's sometimes easier to see um, it's maybe easier to observe authentically another culture and country than it is your own i forget what film it was we were talking about was it the was it the mick rock shot episode because oh, we spoke about looking the, the mm. act of looking at things objectively and subjectively in that episode because mm. he's obviously i mean i'm a photographer he was a photographer he's dead now but he was obviously slightly removed and everything he saw was through the lens. So we actually see what he saw because we see the images and Mm. that's quite a unique thing in, in, in art, I guess. Yeah. I think maybe it was that I'd have to go back and I'd have to go back and watch it. Um, there's a lot of fake, fake, fake in this film. Oh yes. And you kind of have to leave yourself in a little bit of a limbo once once that first twist happens about 48 minutes into the film, it's almost like having the carpet pulled from you. Because up until that point, you understand that Sukhi is working with Fujiwara. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're thinking, right, Lady Hideko, she is the one who's being tricked. And then they trick Sukhi, leaving mm-hmm. Sukhi at the nut house and then suddenly you have to start thinking and questioning everything yeah. and there's still an hour and 40 minutes left of the film yeah yeah it's great it's really really clever and it kind of it's because it plays into sort of archetypes you know you completely believe that lady hideko is this sort of like innocent childlike um person kind of trapped in arrested development essentially because that's kind of how she's presented herself for the entire first part of the story and you and you kind of you think the drama is coming from Suki and her potentially 
thinking about betraying the Count because she might have feelings for Lady Hideko. And so yeah. then when it completely flips and it turns out that Lady Hideko is the one who is actually plotting and Suki is the more like naive childlike one because she's completely sort of wandered into this. Um, it's it's fantastic. It works so... It's just sort of like really um, satisfying as a viewer. You know, when you get that really satisfying feeling of like, I'm in really good hands here. I'm in the presence of, you know, huge intelligence um, and wit. And it's done in such an understated, beautiful way that you don't feel like you've, you're being conned. You're like you're being conned, but you kind of love it. Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously is, you know, the characters are being conned. Some of them know it, some of them don't, or they eventually know it. But no one here likes being conned. They're all mm. hypocrites in a way. So do any of them deserve our sympathy? Um, I know. Well, I, yeah, I don't really know. They, they've all, they're all kind of, um, they're all con men, you know, they're all out for themselves, essentially. So, so my question to you from that is, are Hideko and Suki surprised to fall in love with each other? And are they suspicious ah. of it? Well, my question to you in answer to your question, <laughs> there we go. in answer to my question... <laughs> <laughs> was was sex weaponized? Was the plan to always weaponize sex? So did Hideko, Lady Hideko, did she plan to use sex as a way to con Suki? And is it a side effect? Is it in a, an un, not an un, unfortunate, but is it a happy coincidence that the weaponization of sex actually resulted in what turns out to be a far greater result for Hideko than previously planned. So did she plan to weaponize sex? I don't know, because you kind of, that would mean that the Count knew that Suki would be interested in women, I guess, because he would have to tell her. Doesn't he, he does tell her that, doesn't he? He does tell Lady Hideko that she could seduce her, no? Not to my memory. He says that she can't read. You can let her read the letter. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess Hideko is, is yeah, you feel like quite uncomfortably in the first part that Suki is the one who is exploiting Hideko by doing that kind of, I'm going to show you what men want thing. Um, when actually... Or the thing in the bath with the, the oh, fire. Oh, yeah. The th which is incredibly... The thimble. Sexual, but without yeah. being exploitative. Yeah, I, I was like completely blushing in that scene because I was just like, holy moly, like that is just You are a Victorian lady. Uh, I'm a Victorian lady. Oh, I almost had a, had a moment, needed my smelling salts. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like Hide Hideko is playing a very clever game because she's pretending to be sort of a victim when actually she's anything but. Or I mean, she. that's the thing though, isn't it? Is she a victim? Because clearly she's been if not physically, then definitely emotionally abused by her uncle. And so she was initially a victim, but has she then, you know, has the, pre has the prey become a predator? Is it justifiable? And if it's, if it's women taking down men or women duping women, is that better than what's happening where the uncle is gathering all these men for her to read out this um, sort of sordid erotic content you know is it is the film saying that all men are perverts essentially 
I don't. I don't know if I. I don't. Hmm. In 2022, there's always the 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 um not the possibility. You know, we could always look at it ideologically that this is saying all men are perverts and all women are victims when clearly Hideko has a foot in each camp because she's clearly wise beyond her years because she's had to grow up really quickly because she saw her auntie killed Mm. um, in suspicious circumstances. She's got a strange uncle with a black tongue and a dirty snake and and a horrifying octopus so so she is yeah horrifying octopus but you know she is trying to get out by any means necessary but people are getting hurt in the crossfire yeah and i don't know if that is completely justifiable well the only people getting hurt are the people that who are actually involved in the con at various levels like who well the count obviously ends up essentially dead the uncle ends up dead yeah and hideko and suki are initially sort of hurting but then they have the happy ending they kind of overcome the con they pull the best con because they actually get out of it Hmm. they get out of this situation like this situation was always going to be incendiary i guess and it had to come to an end somehow and it's kind of it's quite nice that it comes to an end through female empowerment and female love. You know, I think by the end you're supposed to believe that they they do genuinely love each other. But is it okay for Count Fujiwara to be caught in the crossfire? In the original plan, Fujiwara and Hideko were equal partners, mm-hmm. and it was for it was basically more for Hideko's benefit because yeah. she was going to get out of this shit situation. He was, he was doing all right as whatever he does. I don't know if he yeah. is a, a full-time con man. So is it right for the Count to suddenly get the foot on the neck? Hmm. Is this film ideologically saying, oh, it's fine. He can be double-crossed because he's a man. But hmm. women can't be double-crossed because they're women. So even though this film was made... Well, it was written way before, and then this film was made prior to the Me Too movement. It's mm-hmm. almost in the modern parlance, the idea, the, you know, the ideological notion that all men are the same and all women are victims. Yeah. It seems to be playing into that ahead of time. Yeah, and actually, like the Count's punishment is really quite horrific as well. You know, he gets all of his fingers chopped off and then mm. basically that the uncle is going to take him apart piece by piece. Um, and it's only because the Count smokes his lethal opium cigarettes that actually he ends up taking both their lives instead. Yeah. So he's being punished for his actions, 100%. Um, and his his kind of goal is is really quite interesting because he says... Frankly, I'm not in that interested in money itself. What I desire is the manner of ordering wine without looking at the price. So he is sort of, he's aspiring to climb the social ladder to a point where mm. he's so comfortable that he can just do whatever he likes without having to worry about the financial um, loss of that. So he's got... Then he, is like, money. Then, he in, then, then he is interested in money because you don't get yeah. that without... 
bags of money. Yeah, but he's kind of going. He's he's got this like really romantic idea about that without having not actually accepting that it is about having money. Yeah. So yeah. So it's interesting. But that's the that problem with is, a class-based system. And yeah, making people who were born into certain classes remain in those classes. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're new money, like um, Kathy Bates in Titanic. <laughs> new money. Is he this film's version of? The husband in Carol and the girlfriend in what did we watch before this? <laughs> the, you know the the trope of the the in the the hurt person who's in love with the queer lead character. Like, is he the one who gets? Oh, you're talking about Charlie in um, Single Man. Yes, exactly. So is he the one who gets punished for getting in the way of gay romance? Maybe. I think it's slightly different, and I think. The answer to that lies in a discussion of whether is this a LGBTQI film? Is this part of queer cinema? Or is this an erotic con thriller that just so happens to feature two lesbians? Yeah. Because Carol and a single man, and even And Then He Danced, is very much about the queer experience within their... uh, societal situation this is this feels a bit heightened in that way that korean cinema can be it's weird it can be both heightened and also uh, completely grounded you know you have this high concept you know like um parasite parasite's completely Mm. heightened but you couldn't pinpoint any one particular aspect it's just taken as a whole it feels heightened but it's completely grounded Mm. this doesn't feel like a queer experience film it feels like it's happenstance they just so happened to be lesbians because neither one has or pan or bi neither one has a moment where they question their sexuality it just seems to open like a flower and accept what it is yeah they're like they're just incidentally queer they don't have Mm. that yeah they don't have their coming out moment they don't have their is this wrong moment they sort of just follow their feelings without question and actually when Hideko slaps Suki it's because well we think it in the first part we think it's because she's just sort of like childishly rebelling or whatever whereas in the second part we now know that she slaps her because she knows that Suki is actually trying to convince her to go with the count even though she's made it really clear that she doesn't want to be with him she wants to be kind of with Suki um yeah, so it's kind of an interesting entry in in the queer canon because it it isn't about the gay experience. It's a story that just happens to have gay characters. And sometimes that's kind of my preference because a lot of the time there's only so so much you can do with just purely dissecting what it means to be gay. You know, sometimes you... It'd be the same way. It's like rom-coms, um, straight rom-coms. You know, it's like there's only so much mm. you can do with will they, won't they. I, I kind of what's interesting about this one is that it's Park Chan Wook's sort of lighter film. You know, it's more playful. Yeah. It's got a great <laughs> sense of humor without skimping on the depth and the horror of the situation as well. Like there's a bit where a baby gets fed a spoonful of sake and it's just hilarious. Like a crying baby suddenly is like, whoa. Um, the way the count treats the maid 
and then not the maid Suki and then her disgust at his attempts to be romantic like she's scoffing on the sidelines it's got such a lovely feeling of like updating the traditional um what were they what were they called Uh, the the really traditional sort of like book adaptations oh my god what are they called oh merchant ivories that's the one yeah it's like that Mm. but in south korea modern modern sensibilities it's such a lovely sort of textured interplay of tons of different stuff basically but weirdly if you really think about it it's quite a simple story it's just told in a not overly convoluted way it's just told in a really amazing way that that pitches this as a mystery thriller as opposed to a period piece even though it is a period piece it doesn't stick to the tropes of a merchant ivory or a jane eyre you know there's there's costumes and there's oldie stuff but really if an english language remake was ever made i could imagine paul verhoeven having great fun with this yeah definitely yeah i mean this looks like a gothic version of a british um costume drama without being an itv1 drama yeah yeah it's completely like the south korean version of that you know but so why i wanted to kind of go back to the sex because it's a very very explicit film in a lot of ways you read my mind what do you do you think the graphic sex adds anything of value or does it do you think it detracts from from the film i was thinking about this because it's always that term the male gaze g-a-z-e this is yeah for this aspect it's a lesbian love story featuring uh, female on female sex directed by a non-lesbian man so who is this either who is the film for or who is the who are these scenes for are these scenes to titillate lesbians or are they a a fantasy version of lesbians aimed at straight men who like watching girl on girl action on Pornhub <laughs> in terms of the placement of the scene in the film do we learn anything new about the characters aside from the fact that they're coming together both figuratively literally. and literally <laughs> <laughs> um, does it feel that the film stops to have a sexy sex scene um, or do you actually feel like we're actually learning something you know there's some character development if it's the former, if it feels that the film is stopping just to have a sexy sex scene, there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, exploitation cinema is is very important to the, the, the cinematic landscape. And you love exploitation cinema, you know, Scream and John Carpenter, that is exploitation cinema, but through like, the Hollywood lens, right? Yeah. And it's violent and at times very, very sexy. Um, I have no problem with exploitation cinema i have no problem with with sex scenes i personally don't feel that this stops the film it's quite a even though it's like full-on it's quite tastefully done i don't feel that it's gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous it just feels like it's a non-hollywood sex scene so the boundaries are pushed further than we would be used used to and say something like call me by your name or tip in the velvet or whatever i don't know yeah 
I guess like so whenever I think about sex and cinema which I think about all the time obviously um I always think about the the yeah the idea that you mentioned of is it adding anything story-wise or character-wise and um you know like going back to Paul Verhoeven Basic Instinct is a great example of yes. storytelling through sex. You know, like mm. the the sex scenes in that film are always a battleground. You know, they're yeah. fighting for sort of dominance in those scenes, no matter which character it is. So with this one, the the scene where they are, when they're first together, Suki and Hideko, that scene feels story driven because you're you are learning things about those characters and you know you see that scene twice because it flips the perspective so you Mm. you kind of see that through both their perspectives and you learn that what you think is going on isn't necessarily going on where it starts where it starts to blur the line for me was the very final scene of the film when Suki and Hideko have um escaped they're on a a ship i think like an extremely ornate ship maybe it's like an opium ship i don't know and the last scene is them together naked on a table i think and that that for me felt unusual um because sex in the film like we said has always been something kind of weaponized or something that isn't necessarily just about sex so then to have them at the end where it's purely physical where you know it's it's visually it's purely physical it's like are they in love you know the 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 sex of it makes you question if they actually are in love and then the fact that they use those like tinkling um sex toys the the boys oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like that kind of are they are they appropriating the tools of their own sort of torture essentially you know they're kind of turning it into something positive i guess maybe yeah they they could be flipping it but you know it's not unusual for people in love to use sex toys no i know absolutely it's just an interesting choice it's an interesting choice to focus on the bodies again and the sex of it again Mm. rather than having something more restrained and sort of like they're in love you know they just kiss kind of thing it's just an interesting choice. Maybe that's part of the Korean culture. Maybe that's something that goes over our heads. Maybe to the Korean people who are used to watching Korean cinema, that is how those kind of emotions are depicted. In mm. Hollywood, we're very much used to sex scenes shoulder up. Even now, you might get the flush oh, yeah. of bum. Like this whole, um, this whole Harry Styles thing um he's got two films coming out one way plays a gay policeman the other one way he's playing uh like a controlling husband and apparently both scenes are quite but both films are quite explicitly sexual but i don't think it's going to be as explicit as they are making out because it's harry styles in a whole oh hasn't he already said like films it's only be, bum bum there's no yeah, pp exactly or something yeah. <laughs> like in a very strange way <laughs> <laughs> because he's a child um <laughs> i think it just might be different standards you, yeah you, you watch you can watch european films and they are so far ahead of the idea of, of being so comfortable with with sex there's a I can't, I can't remember the name of it but it's one of bill skarsgård's early films oh, yeah. only probably about 10 years ago right and he's like 
full frontal in mm. it and he's he's young he's like 19 or 20 and i think he's erect at one point mm. there's no hollywood actor that would necessarily no. do that no they'd be blacklisted absolutely they'd be black or they wouldn't be taken seriously like you know michael fassbender everyone talks about that scene now you know when, when you think of my michael fassbender you think of shame i've still never seen shame it's it's, it's good it's an interesting film it's worth watching Hmm. It's no The Handmaiden. (laughs) (laughs) That was The Handmaiden, directed by Park Chan-Wook. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. We are getting out our dictaphone. Oh, Twin Peaks. Diane. Douglas Furs. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Acast, and Spotify so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at Tornstubs Pod. Come give us a tweet. We are after play with our clinking balls. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. <laughs> I'm Josh Winning. Cut. <laughs>